The Bible begins with God. In the beginning, God. And spoiler alert, the Bible ends with God. And everything between the beginning and the end is primarily about God and for God. From beginning to end, the Bible is primarily about God and only secondarily about us. Now, we tend to read the Bible in the exact opposite way. We tend to come to the Bible looking for us or looking for advice for us or what the Bible has to say to us when the Bible isn't primarily for us or about us. It's primarily about God and then secondarily, it's about how you and I fit into the plan and purposes of God. We are not the lead actors in this movie. God is the central character, the lead actor. We are all supporting actors in a plan started by God. It's going to be culminated by God. It is for God and about God. So what we're trying to do in this series is we're trying to ask if the, if the Bible's about God and His purposes and how I fit into those purposes, then what is His plan? What is the big story of the Bible? God creates the world, perfect and, and beautiful. Everything is the way it should be. We talked about it last week. And then humans enter the story and immediately rebel against their Creator, disobey the God that made them and break the relationship with Him. So that we don't think, well, they were the one, two really bad humans and the rest of us have got our act together. God tells us story after story after story of people who keep disobeying God, who keep breaking relationship with God. Hundreds of years from Genesis 3, 2, 3 to Genesis 11, hundreds of years of people moving away from God, disobeying God, rebelling against God. And God kind of hits the reset button with Noah and the flood. And then immediately after the flood, we start disobeying God, rebelling against God, living for ourselves and our own plans and our own purposes and not into the plans and purposes of the God that created us. And we said last week that cycle has just continued, generation after generation, as we, who now bear a, a rebellious nature towards God, move away from God. So God, as we said in Genesis 3, determines to give a solution to this. He determines to fix the relationship that's been broken between us and God. The challenge for us is God takes thousands of years to bring to culmination this plan. Um, as I was thinking about it, I, I, I think God could have solved the problem in Genesis 4. Right? Genesis 3, it got messed up. Jesus comes and the problem gets solved in Genesis 4. Why didn't he do it that way and just say, okay, I, I knew that was going to happen and this is the solution right here. One answer that I have is that God not only wanted to solve the problem of our sin and disobedience, he wanted as best as he could to help us understand how he solved it. He wanted us to know the details of why it was necessary, 
how it happened, what it meant. And so God begins to give us story after story, character after character, symbol after symbol for thousands of years to say, this is what I'm doing. This is why it's important. This is what it's going to mean. See, through, through the history of the Old Testament, God is preparing us for the coming Savior. He's getting us ready. He was getting the people of the Old Testament ready. Now that when we go back and read the Old Testament, we're able to say that's what that meant. That was the symbol God was trying to give to us. All of the rituals and all of the symbols. Now, God chooses to accomplish this detailed explanation primarily through one group of people, primarily through a nation that he forms. He chooses to form a nation, starts with one person, becomes what we call Israel or the Hebrews or the Hebrew children or the Jewish people. They become the nation of Israel and God focuses his storytelling, his illustration, his symbols on this one group of people. Now, it's not that God wasn't at work in other groups of people. As we read through the Old Testament, we find people not in this nation who somehow know about the one true God. Some of them just kind of appear and disappear, but they know about the God of Abraham. They, they know about the one true God. So God is at work in other places. We sometimes meet people who put their trust in God and then they become a part of the nation of Israel. God had provisions for that. Foreigners who could become a part of God's family. So God's work was not limited to one group of people or one culture. But that's primarily the story that God tells us. God sort of focuses the lens for us. Maybe so we won't get distracted in a lot of different places. God says, I'm going to tell the story through this one group of people to try and help you better understand what I'm doing. Now, that, that means a couple of things. The trade-off, maybe we could say, the trade-off with God giving us this detailed real-life example is that God had to put it in a certain place at a certain time. He had to put it within a certain culture. And by doing that, that means if we weren't in that culture, there'll be things about the story that maybe we miss or maybe we don't fully understand or maybe they don't make sense to us or, or we read them and go, well, why would anybody ever do that? I would never do it that way. And sometimes when we're reading the Old Testament, we get that feel. What I would say is, no matter when God told this story or what part of the world God used to tell his story, you would have still had the same problem, right? 200 years ago, a lot of things were different than they are now, and they don't make a lot of sense to us now. We do them differently. Certainly, thousands of years ago, in a Middle Eastern context, there were culture, cultural customs that we don't readily identify today. So we have to wade through some of that when we're working through the Old Testament. The other thing, when you, when you read through this particular group of people, you don't read very far before you start asking the question, why in the world did God pick these people? They're awful. 
Like they're terrible people. They have all of these flaws and they keep messing up and they do the wrong thing and they, they make the wrong choices. Why would God pick these people? When I'm reading the Old Testament, sometimes I have that same question. God, why would you use these people? They're messed up. I think the answer is messed up people is all God had to choose from. If God was going to tell his story through humans, the only choice he had was to use flawed people because we're all flawed people. If God had used you, you're a flawed person. If God had used me, I'm a flawed person. And thousands of years ago, people, thousands of years from now, people would read my story and go, God, why did you use him? Like, why? The only choice God has if he's going to use people is to use messed up people. And so the Bible for, for God's purposes gives real life real detailed story of the characters that God uses. Just be grateful that you weren't one of the people God used for an illustration. Because for thousands of years, people would have read your worst mistakes and the things you most want to hide and your worst decisions. And people would stand on platforms like this and they'd be talking about you and how dumb you are and how terrible a decision you made. Right, that's the only option God had was to use flawed people. So in Genesis chapter 12, God chooses a man by the name of Abram. His name is going to be changed to Abraham, the same people. God chooses a man named Abram and says, I want to give you descendants. I want to turn your family into a nation and I want to give you a particular piece of land that I want you to live in. I'm going to promise to give that to you. You just need to leave where you are and go to where I'm leading. Now, Abraham was a terribly flawed person too when you read his story. He was horribly flawed. He was not any better than any other man or woman on the planet at that time. He lived in a polytheistic culture. He was not a righteous person. God, out of his grace, chose Abraham to start his people, his nation. Genesis chapter 12. This is how the story begins. The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse you. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So God makes a series of promises. I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to turn your family into a great nation. And then this line, I'm going to bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. I'm going to be with you. I'm on your side. I'm for you. I am on your side. I'm with you. And then finally... All nations are going to be blessed. All people are going to be blessed through you. And that was part of God's foreshadowing that someone was coming who would bless every person in the whole wide world. It really literally wasn't going to be Abraham. He was going to die only having two sons. The whole nation was not going to be, the whole world was not going to be blessed specifically through Abram, but through Abram's family, someone was going to come with the ability to bless the entire world. Anyone who turned in, anyone who trusted in this person, anybody who followed this person could be blessed no matter where they came from. This was the covenant 
we call it. This is the promise. This is the agreement that God made with Abram. In Genesis 15, God reaffirms the same agreement. I, I'm going to make you a great, I'm going to make your name great. I, I, I'm going to make your descendants a, a nation of people. I'm going to bless the whole world through you. And Ab- Abraham's kind of confused because at the time, he doesn't even have a legitimate heir. His only offspring is an illegitimate son. His wife couldn't get pregnant, and so he slept with her servant and had a son by his wife's servant. I told you these were terrible people, right? He slept with his wife's servant, had a son, and, and Abram's like, he's going to get all my possessions. Like He's not even going to reign in my place. He's not going to carry on. He's an illegitimate son. I don't even have a legitimate biological son to pass things on to. And God says, no, but I, I've made this covenant with you. I've made this promise to you. I've made an agreement with you. So in Genesis 15, God takes it a step further. It was customary. uh, Again, this is where we kind of get confused because it's so out of our norm. The way to ratify, enact this particular type of covenant was to engage in a specific ceremony. So God says to Abraham, he invites him to a covenant ceremony. This particular uh, treaty, it had a name. The name's not important. But it was a a treaty that Abraham and everyone who knew Abraham would have been very familiar with because it was a specific treaty between a powerful person and a powerless person. Most agreements, most treaties were made from one powerful person to another powerful person. One king would make an agreement with another king. They had equal standing, equal power, equal wealth. But there was a specific treaty that allowed a powerful person to look at a powerless person and say, because of my goodness and grace, I'm going to make an agreement with you, even though you're not my equal, even though you don't have the resources that I have. This is the treaty. This is the agreement God is making with Abraham, and he invites him into a ceremony to make it official. The way we make agreements official uh, if they're kind of on the side agreements, maybe it's a handshake, although not right now. Don't shake hands right now. Maybe it's a handshake, used to be a handshake. Now, most often, you sign something, right? You have a contract, a covenant, an agreement, and you sign your name, and they sign their name, and it's official. Uh, when, uh, when you agree to purchase a home, you sign a lot of paperwork. Remember, ever been in that? At that attorney's office, that's a lot of fun, isn't it? Just page, and you, don't, you haven't even read it. You're just flipping through pages, signing your life away, agreeing to pay ungodly amounts of money for the next 30 years, right? And you sign it quickly so you don't have to think about it. Yeah, that's how we do it. That's how we make agreements. When, when our government makes an agreement with another government, they have a, a treaty signing ceremony in the Rose Garden. The media shows up. They have like 50 pins because everybody wants a souvenir pin. They sign the agreement, and it's enacted. Thousands of years ago in the Middle East, that's not how they did it. This is going to sound weird, but this is what they did. Both sides of the agreement brought a sacrifice. And this is the gross part. The sacrifice was cut in half. Half of the animals were on this side. The other half was on this side. 
And the two partners in the agreement would walk in between the sacrifice, right? As if to say this is a costly agreement, this is a costly sacrifice, and if I fail on my part, may this happen to me. I'm making an agreement to you that I'm going to follow through on my end. Now, this is how it played out for Abraham in Genesis chapter 15, verse 12. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then, as he's in this deep sleep, Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation your descendants will come back here to the promised land, For the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. So God has sort of this preamble, has this discussion with Abram to say, here's what's going to happen. And God basically tells him what's going to happen through our book of Joshua. He says, you're you're, going to have kids and and you're going to have a whole bunch of uh, ancestors. And one day they're going to go to a foreign land. And we know that was Egypt under Joseph. So they go to Egypt. 400 years are going to pass, God says. They're going to become slaves in Egypt. And then God says, I'm going to bring them out back to this land. And and they're going to have to struggle when they get back to the land. Because the people in the land at that time are going to be a lot of trouble. And God doesn't give a lot of information about that. Other than to say, it's going to be difficult when they get back. And and there's there's going to be some things they have to work through. God now is getting more specific about His covenant. I'm promising. I'm agreeing that I am going to do this for you. Then we get to Genesis 17, uh, yeah, uh, verse 17, and we read, When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. So the, the sacrifice is set up. But instead of Abraham walking through the sacrifice, what he saw was, a, a, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch, which represented God. These were symbols for God. The fire pot represented the purity of God. It would be where metal was purified. It was melted down and the dross, we would call it. Anything that wasn't pure metal was skimmed off the top and then they poured it into a mold and they made instruments out of it. Uh, it, it represented purity, holiness. The fiery holiness of God. The torch represented God as the light and the one who is leading us. So in this vision, in this moment, Abraham sees the sacrifice, but only God is walking between the sacrifice. Abraham isn't. Only one party is present when this covenant is enacted. Now we get to chapter 17. And God comes back and reaffirms the covenant again. This is verse 1. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me faithfully and be blameless. 
Then I will make my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. So for the first time, God says, Abraham, there's a part that you play in this. Now, this was very common in this particular type of treaty. The more powerful person extending grace to the powerless person to make a, a covenant with, they often came with a list of stipulations. They often came with a list of regulations. You have to keep this part of it if you want me, the wealthy, powerful person, to keep my end. This is what you have to do in order to keep your end of the covenant. And God says to, to Abraham, your part is to be blameless. Your part is to obey me all the time. Your part is to be faithful. And God reiterates His commitment. Your name's going to be great. Kings are going to come from your family, God says. It's going to be an eternal covenant that we have. But your part, Abraham, is you got to be perfect. you got to be blameless if this is going to work. You get down around verse 9, God says, your descendants all have to be blameless. They all have to be perfect too, not just you. All your kids and grandkids and great-grandkids, as long as your ancestors are on this earth, they have to be blameless. That's your part of the covenant. My part of the covenant is I'll make your name great. I'll give you a land. I will give you a people. I will bless all people through you. Obviously, the problem is, Abraham couldn't be blameless. Abraham couldn't be perfect. Abraham couldn't be sinless. If that is what is required of Abraham, then the covenant's going to break down. Because in a covenant where one side doesn't fulfill their obligations, then then the covenant's over. You tear up the covenant. It's done. Abraham could not fulfill his side of the covenant. And neither could anybody else who came after him. Abraham has a son named Isaac. Isaac was not blameless. Isaac has twins, Jacob and Esau. They were not blameless. Jacob has a pile of sons. Read the stories of those guys. I'm telling you, they were not blameless. Joseph, Moses, David comes along. Solomon comes along. The prophets come along and they keep saying to the nation, obey God, obey God, and the nation doesn't obey God. The stipulation that God puts on Abraham and his people is one that they can't fulfill. And not only them, fast forward to today, you can't fulfill it either. If the way into covenant relationship with God is you and I being blameless, we're never going to get in. Which is why God was the only one who walked between the sacrifice. God was the only one who enacted the covenant. Because God's intention was to keep both sides of the covenant. God's intention was to keep all of His promises to us. And then to step in in our place and be blameless for us. God was going to keep both sides of the covenant. And he was going to do that through his son. Like Jesus was going to come one day. And Jesus was going to be our side of the promise. God maintained his covenant 
through disobedience after disobedience, generation of sin, generation after generation. He maintained his side of the covenant because he knew one day Jesus was going to come and fulfill our side of the covenant. He was going to be blamed. He was going to be perfect. He was going to be sinless. And not only would Jesus walk through the sacrifice for us, Jesus would become the sacrifice for us. It would be the perfect blood of Jesus that was shed for us on our behalf so that we could come into relationship with God. And, 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 and from this point in the story, the Old Testament gets filled with examples of this illustrations of how this is going to happen. Abraham eventually has a son with his wife, Sarah, and names him Isaac. And at one point, God comes to Abraham and says, I want you to sacrifice your son, your one and only son. I want you to sacrifice your son, which is an awful request, isn't it? Like None of us can imagine making that request, receiving that request, what we would do. But the request wasn't to get Abraham to sacrifice his son. The request was to paint a picture for all of us. Because Abram goes to sacrifice his son. And right before the moment, God says, wait. There's a ram over there that's going to be the substitute. He's going to take the place of your son. Joseph grows up with his family, gets rejected by his very own people. Gets rejected by his family, people that were closest to him. Sold into slavery, left for dead. And God raises up Joseph to to be a spokesperson for the people of God that they could be saved in a time of famine. Joseph takes the place, stands before the judgment that his family would have received becomes their salvation. 400 years go by. The people of Israel grow, multiply. They become enslaved in Egypt. God sends Moses to stand before Pharaoh to bring God's people out of darkness into light, out of slavery into freedom. God's sending people. Not just to tell a good story. Not, not, not just to give us something to talk about. God is sending people so that you and I would realize there's an ultimate someone coming for us. Ultimately, there is someone coming to set us free. Sometimes I read the Bible and, and my thought is, I would have given up on these people at some point. I would have just been done with it. I make this promise to them and, and they mess up and disobey and want nothing to do with it. At some point, I would have given up on them. Not just the Old Testament, the New Testament as well. Ever read, ever read through the Gospels, read about Jesus' disciples. They knew Jesus, they walked with Jesus and aren't there times you think, I would have just left them at the sea and gone and found some other friends. Like They keep messing up over and over. And oh, Jesus just talked about that, and they messed up like two hours later. The very thing he was just talking about, they just did. Jesus said not to do it. As I read the Bible, there's a part of me that just thinks, I would have just given up on these people. 
I don't think I would have kept my promises because they obviously didn't keep their promises. But the truth is, if you knew all the details of my life, like if they were written down for you to read, unfiltered, unedited, my thoughts, my actions, who I've been at my worst. If you read my life, you get to a point and you go, like, I, just, I would just give up on this guy. I just, I just give up. If you ever get to a point in your life where you feel like maybe God would give up on you, or maybe you've messed up too much, or you've asked for forgiveness too many times, or you've made the same mistake too many times, you've blown it too many times, we have, we have, a, we have a whole book full of people And it reminds us, no matter what they did, God kept His promise. God kept coming for them. God God kept moving towards them. God sent someone for them. And God keeps His covenant to us. God keeps His promise to us. God kept His promise to send His Son to take our place that our sin could be forgiven. And there's nothing we could do. We couldn't keep enough laws. We couldn't keep all the stipulations. We we couldn't make everything right because we were good enough or smart enough or better than everybody else or more righteous than all the other people that we know. There was never enough that would get us into relationship with God other than Jesus coming and taking our place, doing it for us, living a blameless life for us. Dying a perfect death, sinless death for us. Rising again on the third day for us. Standing in front of us, fulfilling our end of the covenant. That's what, God, that's what Jesus did for all of us. And what he asks is that we follow him. What he asks is we trust that, that, that I can't be good enough. I can't get to God on my own. I can't fix my sin on my own. Jesus, I need you and what you did to count for me. And if that's happened for you, these stories in the Old Testament, they're given to us as a reminder of the gratitude that we should live with for a God that would do that for us. For God that would offer, offer that kind of forgiveness, no matter how many times we've blown it, that God would just keep His promise towards us, even though we don't keep our promise towards Him. And if you haven't, if you have not entered into relationship with God through Jesus, man, this is the day. This is the day that you stop making excuses or stop trying to convince yourself that you're just as good as everybody else that you know and you realize that the, the story of the Bible, the story of the Bible is that you and I aren't good enough. But Jesus was perfect on our behalf. And by trusting Him, we get applied to our life the very righteousness of Jesus. The perfection and holiness of Jesus gets applied to our life when our sin gets taken by Him. Let's pray. If you're here and, and you walk with God and you know Jesus and, and you've trusted your life to Him, just be grateful in this moment.
that Jesus would take your sin, that he would live a perfect life for you, lay down that life and rise again for our forgiveness and salvation. And if you haven't, this is the message of the Bible from beginning to end, that you and I have sinned and rebelled and disobeyed God. And Jesus stands in our place, taking our punishment and giving us eternal life. And you just have to trust that. You have to believe that. You have to believe in the one who came and died and rose again for you. You can put it in your own words. You can pray it however you want to pray it. But if you don't know God today, invite Christ into your life. Let him take over. Let him be your savior today. Not just a story on a page, but someone who transformed you. You can let us know after the service. I'd love to pray with you. I'd love to celebrate with you what God has done in your life. You can let us know on the connection card. You've committed your life to Christ today. God, I pray that no one leaves this morning without knowing that they put their trust in Jesus, realizing that He was the perfect life and death and resurrection in their place for the forgiveness of their sins. God, thank You that You have never given up on us no matter how many times we've messed up, no matter how many times we've disobeyed, you never gave up on us. You rejoice in the grace and the love that you show towards us. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.